so far, some of y'all just woke up, so you're like, I haven't even done anything today yet, but we were up at uh, 5.30 this morning, so we've been up for a long time. Um, excuse me, I'm going to definitely just like wipe all up in my nose, so um, y'all forgive me, but if I don't, I'll be sniffling the whole day, and it ain't allergies, it's Jesus, so um, I hope today has just been different for y'all. I know Friday uh, was very different for me in, in the best way, um, but I, I hope today has just been different. And, uh, and when I mean different is, is I mean, um, the resurrection is, is real. And um, we, we, I couldn't find a picture. This is just like totally humor. Some people are going to be offended by this, whatever. Um, but uh, I couldn't find a picture of Jesus that wasn't white as snow. And, um, and so, uh, so we just did the silhouette. Um, fun fact, <laughs> Jesus wasn't white. So... Um, Anyway, that's another conversation for another day, I guess, but um, I was trying to find an accurate picture of Jesus on Google and couldn't find it. So um, anyway, um, and also a picture of him on the cross. Uh, man, if, if what you find on Google is Jesus on the cross, then he didn't go through anything that bad. Um, but uh, but I, I digress. So anyway, I'm glad you guys are here. Thank you all for being with us on Easter. Thank you, everybody online. Let's go ahead and, and give. And um give you an opportunity to respond to the resurrection in a very tangible way, which is giving. And, um, and so I'm going to actually look up that number. I don't give y'all this a lot, but it's the first of the month. And so uh, if you want to give through text, you can uh, shoot a text to 206-859-9405, 206-859-9405. And if you text Dream Give all one word, no capitals, no nothing, um, then it will send you the link to give. So that's a really easy way. Uh, you can give on the app, Dream App. Um, you can give on our website, and you can give in person, like we're about to do. And, uh, and so, yes, I think that's it. Oh, and um, two other announcements. I, actually, I haven't actually told any of y'all this, so leaders and stuff, I apologize. Um, Tuesday night, we won't have group. And honestly, it's just to give us some a day to rest. So uh, since we did the worship night, Friday night, Easter today, um, we will not have group this Tuesday night. And some of our leaders are out of town, um, Hey Hannah and Tim, on their honeymoon that they had to push out a year. And so, uh, so they're finally able to travel and do that. So um, anyway, so we're going to take Tuesday night. If anybody wants to grab dinner or whatever, praise the Lord, that's awesome. But as far as something organized here, um, this week, we'll, we will not have Tuesday. We'll pick it up next Tuesday. Um, and then I, I mentioned this earlier casually, but one more thing while y'all just prepare to give. Uh, if you have an Apple TV or Roku, um, our app is on both of those now. So if you just search Dream Church Columbia, you can watch the live stream on there, and you can watch all the services, um, sermons ever on demand. So um, there's that. We just want to make it really easy for everybody to access it. And we have a big... Um, I want to say, we have a lot of people that don't live in Columbia and honestly don't even live in South Carolina that are tracking with what the Lord's doing here. And so we also want to make things accessible for all those as well. So anyway, there's that. And I think that's the only other announcement. Olivia's preaching next week, which I can't wait for. That's gonna, if y'all think today's good, wait till next week. It's probably going to be much better. So I cannot wait. That's going to be so exciting. Um, okay, well, we're going to pass the, the, old, the old bucket. Nope. It's not even out here. This is Easter, and we don't even have the offering bucket out there. Um, (laughs) 
Ellington, <laughs> could you run to my office? I meant to grab it this morning. It might be locked. So um, some, of you, some of you were just like, I'm not so sure about giving and all that stuff. And then the Lord's saying, no, we're just going to wait a little bit longer and make sure you can have that opportunity. Anyway, while he's going to get that, go ahead and turn to Genesis 15. And this is where we're going to start. Um, full disclosure, I, have, um, I had this, eight pages of a sermon that the Lord so lovingly um, changed. So, um, so anyway, so we're going to do something a little different, but I'm going I'm to I'm steal some stuff from it still. Um, so we're going to start in Genesis 15, and then eventually we'll end up in uh, Matthew, and then in Acts, and then in Romans. Um, you don't have to turn to all of those because there are only one or two verses in each of those, but um, Genesis 15 is going to kind of be our main text. This isn't your typical resurrection uh, passage, um, but I'll move my little tissues over here. But um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to connect. It's, it's going to connect in a really cool way. I've hinted towards this story many times throughout many different, thank you, uh, messages, but today I'm actually going to study it. So um, here's Ellington with the offering bucket. And so if you want to give, just raise your hand and I'll let him just go ahead and, and uh, pass it around. It's like the price is right. Um, raise your hand up. Put your hands in the air. Just kidding. Um, we've been watching Madagascar a lot, so I've got all those songs stuck in my head. I like to move it. Um, it's all we sing all the time. Also, also uh, Aladdin. We have all of those songs memorized by heart. Um, so, is that everything? Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. If anybody got missed, it's up here at the end of the service. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to jump right to it. Genesis 15, I'm going to be in the NIV today, and we will, uh, <laughs> everybody check in, check in your translations. Um, the Bible app has the NIV, so uh, that's what I'm going to read it from. Um, okay, here we go. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram, who will eventually be Abraham, um, in a vision. And he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. The other translation of that is, I am your sovereign, which is amazing. Um, I am your shield, your very great reward. Okay. And, and the other way to translate that is, your reward will be great. Either of those are pointing to Yahweh. Okay. So I, Yahweh, am your shield. And I, Yahweh, am your great reward. Now, he's going to be receiving a great reward here in just a minute and then later in his life. Um, but I think it's really cool that the Lord is pointing out to him right here, excuse me, in the start, that, um, that he is going to be the one that is, is determining Abraham's um, success. Um, and, and the reason is, is because Abraham, or Abram at the time, is about to go through a time of really having to trust in the Lord because things take, a, a, for him, a long time. And so what the Lord is doing is right here on the front end is saying, Abram, at the end of the day, I am your reward. Okay? So he's really fixing Abraham's order, if you will, in this moment. So, I'm your shield, your very great reward. Verse 2, but Abram said, sovereign Lord, pointing to him just saying, I am your sovereign. Really cool. Sovereign Lord, what can, I, what can you give me 
since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. So earlier, just backstory, Abraham had been, Abram had been given the promise of descendants like the stars in the sky, that whole thing. Well, if you fast forward to Genesis 15, the Lord comes to him and he says, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your sovereign, and your very great reward. Why is he telling him, Do not be afraid? Because it's been a while since the Lord originally said, You're going to have descendants like the stars in the sky, and he had none. And he's not getting any younger. I mean, he's old, right? So he's getting older, and the Lord shows up. Just picture the love in this. The Lord shows up, sees that Abraham's getting concerned that this is taking some time. And he says, hey, don't be afraid. I am your sovereign. Sovereign means I'm, 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 I'm in control of this, okay? I am your sovereign, your very great reward. Don't be afraid. Abram responds to this and says, but what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus which in that day, typically, if there were no sons to inherit an estate, then the, the male servant, the main male servant of the house would receive the estate. Um, and I would go into why ser- servants were very different then than they, we would see them today. Um, but that's a whole other message for another day. Y'all just track with me. So, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliar's, Azar of Damascus. Check out verse 3. So Abram says that. It says, verse 2, Abram said. Then verse 3, it says, and Abram said. Now, why would it point out that Abram said both of those sentences? If you were in God's group one week, I think I mentioned this, but so just hang with me. Well, in Hebrew, this would, this would tell us that these are two different conversations. Okay? So one conversation is, don't be afraid, I'm your shield, your reward would be great. But Lord, how can you give me... Uh, how, what can you give me since I remain childless? Blah, 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 blah. Verse 3, and Abram said, is telling us now we've started a totally different conversation. We have no idea how long the time that went between verse 2 and 3. It could have been years. We don't, we don't know that. So think of this. Abram speaks, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And the Lord doesn't respond. Now, why doesn't the Lord respond? And I'm going to jump ahead in this because this isn't what I'm teaching on. Because Abram's about to ask again, and then the second time the Lord's going to answer him. And what happens after the Lord answers him is right after them, him and Sarah say, you know what? If the Lord is actually going to give us a son, let's try to make this thing happen. Here's my servant over here. Why don't you sleep with her? So after verse 2, the Lord remains silent. Now, why does he remain silent? Because he knows if he gives them insight into what's about to happen, they're going to try to ruin it. Salah. Right? But Abram insists, verse 3, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. In case you didn't hear me the first time, let me tell you what I, what I got to say. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then he took him outside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now listen to this. 
This is before Jesus. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Hold up. Faith and righteousness are tied together after Jesus. Abram believed. He did nothing. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord called him righteousness because of it. Okay. Remember that. Verse 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Verse 9. Now this is where we're going. So let me stop right here. Just one more little thing. Abram, it is believed, the land that he came from, he would not have been serving the Lord. Okay? So the Lord called Abram out of a situation where he was worshiping other gods. So when he's using this language of, like verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you. He's reminding him, and even in verse 2 when he says, do not be afraid, I am your sovereign, that other translation, what he's doing is, is he's setting up for Abram, number one, that he is the only God, because in Abram's past there had been a worship of other gods. But in number two, because I am the only God, you can trust every word that I've got to say, even if you don't see it, and it doesn't make sense when I say it. So he's setting him up right here, okay? So he says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of this land? Now, here we go. Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. That's all he tells him. Doesn't tell him what to do with it. He says, go get these and bring them. Verse 10, Abram takes it upon himself to do this. Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut. Then, verse 11, then Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So what is he doing here? Why does he take it upon himself to cut these animals and lay them in a specific way? The Lord didn't tell him to do that. So what's going on here is an ancient, and I've taught on this, but I really want to teach on this right now in regards to resurrection and crucifixion together. In ancient times, when you entered into a covenant, specifically marriage covenant, all covenants, and this is in Exodus as well, were made in blood. It, it, was, it was just it was the way that you told people, I'm going to keep my end of it or my blood is on the line. Or you're going to keep your end of it or your blood's on the line. So when the Lord tells him to bring a heifer to go to ram, he's three years old along with a dove and pigeon, Abram understands the Lord is about to enter into a covenant with him. So he goes, he brings these, he cuts them, he lays them, and what he would have done is he would have, it's called a blood path. He would have laid them on probably a crack in the ground on opposite sides so that as their blood was spilled, it would run down and create almost like a blood stream, if you will. And back in that day, the father that was giving away a bride and the groom would come together 
and they would be wearing a garment where you could visibly see blood splattered on them. And the father-in-law would stomp or walk or splash in the blood so that it got on the garment, as in saying, if I don't give you what I promised you in a pure daughter, you can take my life. I lay my life on it. And then the groom, to be groom, would do the same thing, saying, if I'm not the groom that I promise you I will be, my life can be on the line. And they enter into a covenant. Okay? So this is what happened. Abram knows what's happening. But think about this for a minute. This isn't just a father-in-law man and another man entering into a covenant together. This is man and creator God entering into a covenant together. Think about this. If I'm Abraham, which I'm about to prove to you he does this, I'm going to at some point stop and think, ain't no way he's going to let us down on his end of the covenant. He's God. But there's a high chance I'm going to miss out on this covenant. Right? And it's not just, oh man, shouldn't have done that. Y'all just get divorced. We'll try again. It's, I am putting my life on the line for this. So here's what we see. He cuts them. He arranges them. The birds, however, he did not cut. Verse 11, though. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. A lot of scholars try to do a lot of different things here, and you could probably totally make that make sense, but just strictly, literally. I don't know how many of you see this. We see this a lot in our neighborhood. I don't know why. I guess because we have so many squirrels that die all the time. But, but all the time, there'll be a squirrel dead in a road or in a yard or whatever. And at some point, at some point, not immediately, but later on as that carcass starts to decay, all of a sudden you'll see birds hovering over it and eventually swoop down and, and start eating it, right? So there has been some time that has passed between when he cuts these animals and when birds of prey start to descend on what he had just cut. It's not an immediate thing. And there are uh, traditions, Jewish traditions, Midrash traditions, that say that Abram, in that moment, it hit him, there is no way I can be in covenant with God. And so he cuts these animals, he lays them down, and then he sits and starts thinking, what am I doing right now? Covenant with God. This is going to take my life. Birds of prey come down. He drives them away, and then check this out. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then, as he's sleeping, the Lord said to him, Know for certain, know for certain, that for 400 years... 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here 
for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So he's given him prophetic insight into what's to come. He says, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in, we know now, Egypt. 400 is 40 times 10. 40 being the number of testing, 10 being the number of order or the number of law. Okay? So what's happening in Egypt? They're being perfected, and Yahweh is bringing order, or even you could say the law, into reality for this covenant people. Okay? So he's telling Abraham this. Abram at this point. Verse 17, though. This is, this is it right here. This is the verse. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen. Now remember the blood path. Remember what it represents. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. The pieces of what? The pieces of the animal that he had just cut for the blood path. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Done. Okay, verse 17. When the sun had set, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appear and pass between the pieces. Two things to note, okay? Because on verse 18, it says the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. They had entered into a covenant. Number one, Abram never walked across that path. How could, so technically, you can't be in covenant unless you cross the path. That's the covenant. So one thing to note is Abraham never crossed the path. Another thing to note is that not one, but two presences did go across the path. We see a smoking fire pot and a blazing or a fiery torch. Now, smoke and fire, smoke and fire. Where do we hear this? Where do we hear this language, smoke and fire? Well, every time the Lord, yes, did you say Egypt? Yes, yeah. So coming out of Egypt, first for example, they were led by a pillar of fire by day and a cloud, you could say smoke, by night. Okay? Um, when Moses goes onto the mountain and the Lord appears and gives him the law, what is there? There's smoke and fire. Um, in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes on the new believers, what does he come as? Fire. Right? So, smoke and fire represents the presence of Yahweh. But there's two presences crossing this, both that represent God. Are y'all cold? Are y'all freezing? You're freezing? Hey, could you just turn that air off? Thank you. I see a lot of people shivering. <clears throat> it is kind of cold in here. Um, or at least just crank it way up. All right, so y'all hang with me. So, so what is happening right here? In verse 11, in verse 11... And we're about to make a huge leap, and it's going to be awesome. In verse 11, Abram is like, I can't do this. There's no way. There's no way. In verse 17, Yahweh shows up and says, I know you can't, so I'm going to carry both ends of the covenant. Just, just... Just think about this. 
He said, Abram, I know you can't do this, but I'm going to do it for you. So he shows up as his side of the covenant and goes across. And he shows up as Abram's side of the covenant and goes across. Abram never goes across and yet ends up in covenant with God. This is what this is saying. Because the Lord took on responsibility of both ends, what that meant for Abram was that there was nothing that he could do to keep himself from this covenant because he didn't even cross the path on his own in the first place. Think about this. And we wonder why the Lord was so gracious. I wonder this all the time. With Abram's descendants, the Israelites, time and time and time and time again, he got angry a lot of times. Why was he so gracious with them? Because he was on the line for his end and their end. By this covenant, he had to. He chose to have to intervene on their behalf. This is, this is I mean, I hope you're getting this. I hope you're getting this. That, that God enters into a covenant. Didn't have to. In my opinion, probably shouldn't have. Right? It's like, what are you getting out of it? Enters into covenant with man, but doesn't make man responsible for keeping our own end. Puts himself on the line. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, now, think about that. Think about that. God is saying, if you don't keep your end of the covenant, which we know they won't, it's my blood on the line. And if I don't keep my end of the covenant, which he does, then it's also my blood on the line. Either way, God's blood is getting shed. And either way, man's blood is not getting shed. <laughs> it is through God. All right. Luke, go to Luke. Um, actually, no, 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 don't go there. Don't go there because I'm going to reference Matthew and Luke, and I don't want you to bounce back and forth. So in Matthew, right before the cross, this is what Jesus says in Matthew uh, 26, verse 28. In 26, verse 28, this is what he says right before the cross. And then I'm going to go to Luke. And uh, so this is what he says. He says, this is my blood. He takes the cup. He takes the cup. He hasn't died yet. Nothing's happened yet, but it's about to. And he takes the cup like we took Friday night, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In that moment, what does he have in mind? He has in mind Abram sitting in front, of, in front of a bunch of chopped-in-half animals and father and son, this is just how I imagine it, walking across that path knowing, knowing one day the son was going to have to die for that. And so here he is on the cusp of having to fulfill Abram's end of the covenant. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. 
which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and they drink it. And we drink it still to this day. But in Luke, in Luke, he says this. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, here's why I'm reading both of those. I want to talk about two things really quick, and then we'll go to Acts 1 and Romans 8. I don't have a ton because, like I said, the Lord just changed it on me, but I really want us to get this today. Because nobody, how many, I've never heard this growing up. Never heard this. Genesis 15 was something that we just kind of like flipped through, and that was just like, okay, cool, it was a great encounter. Why on earth would you cut those animals? Like, you know what I'm saying? Um, like he's just lost his mind or something. And um, no, it's, it's, that's the covenant. And in fact, when the Israelites are in the wilderness and God gives them the law, okay, and I'm about to prove this to you too, he's not giving them something new. He's expounding on what he entered into with Abram, their father, in Genesis 15. So he's giving them a covenant, but what covenant he's giving them is the covenant that they were actually already in. Okay, how do I know this? Because when they leave Egypt, before they're given one law, they're called God's people. What qualified them to be God's people? The covenant of Abraham, their father. Okay, so uh, I want to explain a couple of things, and if you were here this week at all, Tuesday or Friday, this might be a little bit of review. I want to talk about two things. One, I want to talk about what ontology is. Don't get lost in that. I know it's a big word. What, what that means is, is how things come to exist. The study of how things exist. That's what the word ontology means. So in, in the thinking of how things come to exist, there's, there's two main ways of thinking. There's many other ways, but there's two really main ways you can think of something existing. Okay? Y'all just hang with me. I promise I'm going somewhere, so just hang with me just for a minute. There is something defined as, Lord, this chair, as existing when it materializes, okay? So uh, if I have a bunch of Legos right here, and we all say, you know what, let's build a tower. And we take those Legos, and we build a tower. When that materializes, we would say that Lego tower now exists, okay? So it exists when it materializes. But then there is ontology of function, which means even though something has materialized, it's not defined as existing until it's given its function or purpose. Okay? So, let me give you an example. We had 501c3 nonprofit organization papers for Dream Church Columbia months, like six or seven months before we ever had a service. So, in you know, February or whatever of 2017, in the eyes of the United States government, we were a church. But no one would have called us to church because we had never had a service. We didn't have any people. I had never preached a sermon. We didn't have a building. We had none of that. But on November 5th, 2017, we had our first service. And every year we celebrate our anniversary, not on the days we became a nonprofit organization in the eyes of the government, but on the day we had our first service. So we materialized seven months or whatever before we ever had a service, but we were in existence when we were given our function. With me? So in the, in the, uh, in the eyes of, um, let, let's look at Adam, for example. In Genesis 1, 2, and then 3, the fall, God raises Adam, man. Adam means man, which is why the uh, Genesis calls him Adam, because um, he's man. But anyway, raises man, Adam, you and I, from the dust. 
But before he breathes life or function or purpose into this clump of dirt, then guess what it is? Just a clump of dirt. So even though it has materialized and looks like a man, we don't call it a man until it's given its function. That's really huge. It's really huge. Because what most people see today as new creation, what most people see as what's coming in the end, we see that strictly as materialistic. In other words, God's going to, everything in this material world is awful, so God's going to throw all that away and give us something brand new and material. Genesis 1 does not tell us the story of what came into purpose by its material. Genesis 1 tells us the story of what came into existence by way of its function. Doesn't mean God didn't also bring it into existence by material. Of course, God said, let there be light, and God created light. But why is Genesis telling us that God said, let there be light? It's telling us that because the function of light is to be good, and the function of darkness is to represent evil. It's function, right? When it gives man its life, the first thing we hear is be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. So they're given their function because they've just been given their existence. Now, this is huge. This is huge. Because Jesus, when he comes as a man to represent us, but fully God to represent us, but in the covenant that God took on, on our behalf, this is, this is, I mean, I can't, I can't go any, Lord, I can't go too deep in this, okay? So just hang with me. Because I don't want you to leave here and be like, well, what was that? I, I really want you to understand this. God, God, in Genesis 15, took on Abraham's side of the covenant. Y'all understand that? Abraham is a man. But God took it on as God. So the only way to fulfill what he had entered into was to be both man and God. Man, because he's taking on man's role. God, because God assumed man's role when he walked across the blood path for him. So this is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you understand this? So then when you look at the cross, it's not, and I don't want to undo our thinking. We're like, man, Jesus died for our sins. Yes. But it's so much greater than that. And the reason why, let me give you, the reason why Good Friday is just another day for us, let's do whatever, who cares? Good Friday, amen, praise the Lord, Good Friday. The reason why it's just another day for us is because we don't have a clue what this is. We have no clue. We think this was to make, get us to heaven. And you're going to get to heaven through that. But what this was, was to get heaven here. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, because we've never taught the Bible. This was to free you from your sins. But do you know why he wanted to free you from your sins? So that you could get back in your rightful place of being fruitful, multiplying, subduing the earth. 
But it wasn't just to say, well, brother, I'm free from my sins. And you know what happens when we think like that? We have a bunch of people who have repeated a prayer at some point in their life and have zero relationship with Jesus because they're going to heaven when they die. Who cares? But if we got saved for something, then it radically matters what happens after you get saved. We had this conversation this morning because it's like, if heaven's the goal, what, who cares about missions? Who cares? Because I told them, I'll just make this public. I, I told them, they were like, well, what a, what a, I should, I, y'all should have never done this. But I was like, um, she said, well, what happens to people who have never heard the gospel and yet they die? Never had a chance to, and I, I believe personally, I can't prove this with, I, well, actually I could prove this with scripture, but it would definitely be a leap. But you can't not prove it. So, um, so either way, I think they're going to have an opportunity to stand face to face with Jesus and either accept him or deny him. If it's on this side of eternity or that side of eternity. Either way, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. It's not even in the Bible, so you know it's whatever. But, but here's why that's important. Here's why that's important. Because if that's, if that's true, which there, there is, I, like I said, I could pull some scripture into that. But if that's true, who cares about missions? If they're going to have an opportunity to make it to heaven one day anyway, who cares? What's the point? What's the point of us doing church? What's the point of us reading our Bible? What's the point of us living for Christ? What's the point of any of it if we've all prayed the prayer and we believe? Access into heaven is faith in Jesus. So you can believe that Jesus is real and believe that he's the son of God and live like H-E-L-L the rest of your life. How do I know that? Because that's what most people are doing. Not today, because it's Easter. But tomorrow, we kick the religious machine right back on. See y'all at Christmas. So this is what we made it. Easter is a marketing tool. It sure ain't about a resurrection. Because if it was about a resurrection, we'd take a bulldozer to the billboards. So Jesus comes as fully man and fully God to fulfill that covenant. Now, when you look at the cross, you don't just see the blood that covers your sin, which it does, which it does. But when you look at the cross, you see your side of the covenant being fulfilled while you're watching it happen. I should be on that cross to fulfill my covenant. That is fully legal. I should, I should be there fulfilling my end of the covenant that I did not hold up. Yet for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then the verse that we all forget, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Uh-oh. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be sozoed. Oops, missed that one. God didn't, John, can't make any clearer than that. John, God sent his son into the world, not to destroy the world, but that through him the world might be brought back into its rightful function. This is why I'm talking about this. Because when Jesus dies and he is raised to life, it's his body that gets out of the tomb. Well, brother, how do you know that? Because the tomb was empty. <laughs> Jesus dies, 
in a fleshly body, beaten, Sabbaths, which if y'all didn't see that post, you need to go back and look at it. I mentioned this Friday. Between, have you ever thought about this? Between crucifixion and resurrection is the Sabbath day where nothing happened. The transition from death to life was Sabbath. Eat you some of that for lunch. So, Jesus dies in a fleshly body. He's in the tomb. But then he rises redeemed in a fleshly body. It's not a ghost. When he gets up, he's not a ghost. How do we know that? Because he's eating, because he's drinking with them, because they're touching him. He's having communion with uh, this. So, so he's risen as a physical. Now, why is that so important? Why, why didn't Jesus, when he died, if the whole goal was just to leave anyway, why didn't Jesus just die and then him draw all the disciples together and then watch him just float away? If I had time, I'd prove to you why Acts 1 isn't him floating away either. But just bye. See y'all when you get to heaven. See you later. Why didn't he do that? Why, why did he spend time teaching them on the kingdom after he had been resurrected? I'll tell you why. Because when he was raised in the same material as went in the tomb, what he was saying is, is my plan is not to give you something new in material. My plan is to redeem that which is in material into a new function New, the word new in Greek. And then I'm going to go to act. Okay, so y'all just hang with me. Y'all doing good? Too much? Okay, you wouldn't tell me anyway, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> um, so the word new, there's two Greek words. I feel like I'm in a college class, which is great. Um, the, there's two Greek words for new in English. Um, and, and we actually had a conversation about this last week. Um, a lot of people don't like that there's a lot of translations in English. There's 450 English translations of the Bible. Um, I, think it's, I think it's needed. We have to have this because the English language stinks compared to Greek and Hebrew. I mean, it's like you're, you're taking a college mind and putting it in a one-year-old when, it comes, when you go from Hebrew, especially Hebrew, but Greek to English. And this is one of those examples. In English, we have one word for new, and it's new, Okay. In Greek, there are two words for new that mean really different things. There is naos, which the Bible uses a couple of places in the New Testament. And that means new in age. So it would be like the material thing. Um, if, if a Lego tower never existed and we built it, it would be called new because we literally just made it. New in age. Okay. Then there's kainos, kainos which is related to it. And it means new. Um, actually, the translation should be fresh, but what it means is new in substance. I like to, I like to use this description because it really kind of like defines it really well. It's being brought back to originality, new in quality. So when John in Revelation 21 says, Behold, I saw a new heaven and new earth, in English we'll read that and be like, Oh, it must be new. But in Greek, John is using kainos, which is, behold, I saw a restored to originality heaven and earth. Not a new existence, but a new original function. 
Y'all with me? Okay. So when, it, when Paul talks about us being a new creation, behold, the old is gone, the new is here. He's not using naos. He's using kainos. Why? Because when you got saved, you woke up the next morning the same person in the same bed, in the same house, with the same messed up hair, brushing the same teeth. Right? And yet, you were totally different. Your salvation is exactly what Yahweh intends to do with creation. Okay? I'm going to read this. Romans 8 says this. We are the first fruits. So what is seen in your life is a first fruit of what Yahweh wants to do in the whole of creation, which is not destroy it and build something new. It's to take it back to how it should have been all along. That should have been a real big amen moment, but that's okay. All right. So in Acts 1, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read three verses. So um, I always say that, and I still hear Bibles just, so that's okay. Acts 1, I love it. That's all right. Luke writes this. I wish Luke and Acts were together. I know why they're not, but Luke wrote Luke, obviously, and Acts, so it would be cool to read them together. Anyway, Acts 1, Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, um, which is probably not an actual person. Um, Theophilus means lover of God. So it could be written to any lover of God, which is probably what it's written to. But any, either way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was, there's the phrase, taken up to heaven after, now I want you to hear this, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now listen to this. After his suffering, so this is after the cross, and then after the resurrection, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, listen to this. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about heaven. Nope. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about leaving. Nope. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Okay. Resurrected Jesus, you got some last things to say before you ascend to the Father. Last few things you got to say. And if the whole goal is to leave, you're going to spend 40 days teaching them why they should deny themselves to the point that they literally sit around and wait to leave. If that's, the, if that's the goal. If the goal is, well, they ask Jesus this. They say, Jesus, what should we pray? How should we pray? Well, I'm glad you asked. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Actually, in heaven is not in most of the original, but anyway. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Wait. Wait. Why? You, you, you see what, so do you see, the, you see the breakdown? Why would God enter into a covenant with man in the first place? I mean, just, just, just go all the way back to Genesis 15. What's the point in being in covenant with man? Unless God's restored covenant with man meant creation being brought back into how it always should have been. Creation, Psalm 8 says, was put under the feet of Adam's sons, you and I. Which means as the leader goes, so goes everybody else they're leading. 
If a shepherd is leading sheep and he turns to the left, what happens? All the sheep go to the left, right? So if we have been given authority over creation, when we start to fall, what happens? Creation starts to fall, which means when we are restored, what happens? Creation begins to be restored. And what we see today is a massive lack in us believing in restoration. We believe in um, escaping. We do not believe in restoration or redemption. And yet we celebrate the cross and the resurrection. The, The poverty of how we celebrate the cross and resurrection is strictly because we don't believe in the resurrection at all. I mean, the, the, reason, the reason that the disciples were willing to get killed for this was because they knew one day they were going to get back up. So, so we, we, we have such a focus, and heaven's going to be amazing. Don't, I mean, make no mistake about it. I can't wait to be in heaven. It's going to be amazing. But what I really can't wait for is when me and my bridegroom come back into the creation and I begin to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he can look across the scope of creation restored and say, it is good. That's what I'm looking forward to. So I'm not in a hurry to leave. You know why? Because I believe I got just as much here as I would there. You don't have to agree with me and you can live in bondage. But I believe that when I spend time with Jesus, listen, I believe that heaven is torn open every time I say, Lord, here I am. What do you want to say? I believe the heavens are ripped open and he begins to say, this is what I got in mind, restoration. This is why I'm so passionate. The reason I always veer towards this, no matter what I'm talking about, I at some point in almost every message talk about how this plays out. You ever notice that? I don't do that because I like getting pushback. I don't, Okay. But the reason I do that is because, I listen, I've seen things and you should have seen things in the secret place that cause us to lead the charge in creation being resurrected. I, I want to see the birds and the squirrels and the trees and the rivers and the roads and the people and, every, and religion and the churches and the leader. I want to see all of it not destroyed, but brought back to how it should have been all along before we messed this up. If if by I mean if by one Paul says if by one man's sin creation was subject to fertility, futility, how much more? How much more does one man's obedience call not just man to live how we should be, but the whole of creation to be as it should be? All right, prove it. Glad you asked. Romans 8. Romans 8. Let me just read what what Brother Paul said. (laughs) Oh, Lord, help me. What if they called each other that? Hey, Brother Paul, what's going on? They probably didn't say what's going on, you know, but like the new sandals. Oh, man. All right. Oh, you ever wonder that? It's like, you know how we were like, hey, man, those are really cool shoes. I wonder if that, then like, hey, those are really cool, like, flip-flops or, you know, say, I got to give me some of those cool dress, you know. It's probably super, co- I wish we, sometimes I wish we could go back to that. It's got to be way more comfortable than jeans. 
when you become a dad, you stop caring about how cool you are, and you, like, you go from really caring about how cool you are to really caring about how comfortable you are. That's like the big shift. And I told Jordan, I was like, I'll never do that. Like, I'm always going to be the cool guy, whatever. And then we had Veda. And today, when I get home, the first thing I'll do before eating a bite is put on some shorts. So um, that's what we're going to do. But hopefully you're at Romans 8 now. Did I tell you not to go there? Maybe I did. Okay. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amazing. Verse 2. Your King James probably has some stuff after that, and uh, that was added by men, not God. So if it did, just take your pen and mark it out. Um, I mean, I'm I'm dead serious. If your Bible says, for those uh, who walk not of the flesh but of the Spirit, that is in none of the original text. So just take your pen and scribble it out. Um, Okay, verse 2, because, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Okay, this is all pointing back to this language. Because uh, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires Man, I could teach on that. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. You can actually, if, if the heat's on, you can turn that off too. It's like getting super hot. Just turn everything off. <laughs> those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. Jesus said it like this. You'll know a tree by its fruit. So, so you know, we'll... we'll, we'll we use love today, we use love to, to mean passive or accepting whatever. Man, I thought God is love. What we're saying is, I thought God was passive. No, 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 God is love. He's not passive. He's love, right? So it's love, it's love for you and I to hold each other accountable when we start to see each other having a mindset on what the flesh desires, it is love for as the family to come around us and say, that's not who you are. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, I just cannot make this any clearer. Flesh does not mean natural. Okay? I know that's what Plato the philosopher said, but he didn't believe in God. So we can just throw that out. What the Bible teaches, when Paul is using the language of spirit and flesh, he's not talking about a ghost versus skin. Like, I mean, like, how we got there, I'm not sure. 
What he's talking about is you being governed by what is on the outside in rather than what is on the inside out. The word spirit doesn't even mean ghost. The word spirit means that which illuminates your life. So it could be your character, your individuality. Uh, your, your, uh, uh, if you're an artist, you're gifting in artistry. If you are a, you know, I don't know, construction worker, you're gifting in building buildings, whatever the case may be. Who you are, what triggers you, what you love, what you don't love, that's your spirit in, in the Greek sense, okay? So don't read this and say, you know, oh, flesh, skin. No, okay? He's not talking about science. He's talking about reality and theology. So those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. This is that language. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to what? Uh-oh, your mortal bodies. Because of his spirit who lives in you. If the spirit raised Jesus from the dead, it'll raise you from the dead too. Amazing. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation but it's not to the flesh to live according to it, but to live, uh, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sunset, sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. It's getting deep here. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. To be an heir, you have to be a kid. Just to make that clear. You cannot be an heir unless you're a kid. So if he's calling us an heir... That means that our adoption, not an adoption like we see adoption where somebody just joins a family, which is amazing. The adoption in this, in this day and age was somebody become, became equal to those of flesh and blood. So this was like you became a, an actual son or daughter. So we've been adopted as actual kids of God, and therefore we are heirs to everything that God has. Now, if we are children, not going to be, if we are children, then we are heirs. Now, today, right here, this is what Jesus bought. Jesus didn't buy us time to wait until we become sons and heirs. Jesus bought us being heirs and sons right now. Amen. Verse 18, then I'm all done. I'm, I'm almost done. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There he's talking about resurrection again. Verse 19. For, listen to this. I've read this a lot, but just hear it in this light. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
What does he say in verse 17? He says, we are children. But then in verse 19, he says, creation's waiting with eager expectation for those children to be revealed or unveiled. That word, you could trace it back in the last book of your Bible. Revelation is called, the title of that is the same Greek word. It's the unveiling, which might make y'all read Revelation a little different. But anyway, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Listen, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. You and I. In hope that the creation itself will be demolished. Nope. Will be liberated from its bondage of decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God, you and I. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about, again, resurrection. This set the church apart from everybody else. Resurrection. Verse 24. For in this hope, what hope? Resurrection. In the hope of resurrection, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it, uh uh-oh, patiently. I got to go. No, I got to wait. Because if we hope for what we do not yet have, which is resurrection, then we will wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. I'm going to just read a couple more verses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Verse 27, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit of God intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I mean, just unbelievable stuff. And we know, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. He works for the good of who? Those who love him. Not, let me just be clear. That's not everybody. I mean, that's, th- this might be a little harsh. This might not be easy. Paul does not say God works for the good of everyone. He says he works for the good of those who love God. He doesn't say he works for the good of those who repeated a prayer. Unless they love God. That word, I taught this. The word right there is agape. That means to prefer. The deepest, most intimate love, it means to prefer. That means when I look at my life, I prefer what he wants more than what I want. So I agape my wife. Why? Because I prefer her and her needs over me and my needs. I don't do that perfectly, but that's the goal. You know what I'm saying? And so... God works together for the good of those who agape him. Why? Because if you prefer his will, you're going to follow the way that he wants to lead your life. And that's why all things work together for the good of you, because you're following the way that he prefers. Do you see this? Like, well, Josh, all things aren't working together for me uh, for the good right now. There's two reasons. You haven't made it yet, or maybe we need to address what preference you have. 
right? Because if we prefer God, we have one promise that it's going to work out for our good, period. But if we prefer ourselves in the name of God, which I did for years, then what we'll constantly do is wonder why things aren't working out that great. And it's because I'm following a path I was never designed to path and would be protected to go and be protected from that path and save for the right path if I would just make the decision to prefer what he wants. Lord, help me right now. Okay. Just Easter bunnies bouncing everywhere. Okay. Said that for all the all the people who <laughs> be mad I just mentioned the Easter bunny. Okay. Um for those God, I'm gonna just last two verses. I just gotta finish this section. It's just so good. I could read the whole thing, but for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. That's you and I if you're saved. You know what? Just for the fun of it, let's just... What then... I mean, y'all don't got anything to do this afternoon, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm almost done. What then shall we say in response? What do we do in response to this? What should we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us everything? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns us? Here we go. If you have a struggle with identity, who, who condemns us? Rejects. That's what condemn means. Who can? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Same word. Think of that. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or COVID? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither. Now think of this in resurrection. You ready? That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo! Come on. Come on. Listen, if you heard that and nothing moved in you, you probably need to get born again. I say that because I love you, not because I condemn you. Paul just said, who can condemn you? Surely not me. I can't condemn you, but I, I can get you to the place where we understand this ain't a game. You hear me? Like this, this is not a game. Your career might be a game. Right? What you prefer is a game that can be easily lost and laid down and nothing changes. But this is not a game. And, and, and what I see, what I see today, 
is us, and I say us, I mean us in the West, our culture, is we lay down, just let me give you, we lay down this definition of love for a cheap piece of junk version of love on a daily basis. I can't, I mean, if I could, if I could say some other words and not get in trouble for it, I would. We lay down that love which called us higher for a love that actually calls us lower every single day. This is the gospel. Let me just, real easy. This is the gospel. This is its worth, infinite, infinity, okay? And let's just, when we were lost, this is where we are, way down here. This is where we see our self-worth. We're just, we're lost. What the gospel does, what the gospel does, and this is really going to mess with some people, is it does not do this and lower to that standard. What the gospel does is take these people and raise them to its standard. So Jesus meets you where you are, but he sure don't leave you where you are. He meets you where you are to bring you where he is. This is what Paul says is we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So he came as a man and died as a man so that you could be raised in heavenly places today with him. But we've taken the gospel and the cross and the resurrection, and instead of raising people to this, we've lowered it so far down that you can live however you want. As long as you repeat a certain prayer, you're good. And we have made it cheap and we've made it weak, and we've made it ineffective, and if I can really challenge you, it ain't the gospel anymore. I think a lot of people have been saved to a gospel that's actually not the gospel. And is God gracious? Absolutely, absolutely. And they'll probably make it to heaven, absolutely. But are we going to see his kingdom? See, that's the question we've got to ask. The, the question we've got to ask is not who's going to heaven. Stop asking that question. What we really need to ask is, how are we getting heaven here? I'm, I'm sick of seeing people die. I'm, seeing, I'm sick of seeing crazy people slam their car into the Capitol barrier on Friday and an officer die because somebody lost their ever-loving mind. I, I'm, I'm sick of seeing this. I'm sick of seeing riots. I'm sick of seeing people get mad because of an election. I'm sick of seeing people get mad because of a mask. And I say that because I got mad about a mask yesterday. So... So I'm, I'm just like, you know, totally just taking that on myself. But I'm, I'm sick of that. You know why? We, we, we get so caught up in this stuff because our eyes are fixed on a heavenly place, which it should be. But our eyes should be fixed on a heavenly place so that we can receive the blueprint to create a heavenly place here. Do you understand me? What makes us image bearers? I said this Tuesday night if you weren't here. What makes us image bearers? We are creators. So if, a, if I use this Tuesday, if a flower outside, can a flower say, you know what? I want to make a cup of coffee. No. Can a bear at the zoo say, you know what? I, I, I think I just want, to, just want to build me a nice fire pit. No. I mean, can a lion say, you know what? I'm going to plant a garden right here, and I'm going to make sure it's water. No. 
Because only one creature in creation was given the ability to create. And it was the image bearers of he who is the creator. So why on earth would he die and then in Acts spend time talking to them about the kingdom? And then in Acts 2 give them the same spirit that just raised him from the dead. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just say, who all believes in me? Everybody raise their hand. Awesome. Let's go. I mean, mean, seriously, think about this. Why wouldn't it be when you get saved, when you get saved and say, you know, dear Jesus, come into my heart. I forgive my sin, repent of my sins. I'll never look at that again. Amen. And then, or whatever. When you say that, why why don't you just like zap into heaven? What's the point? Because once you're given your image back, then you're given the ability to partner with God in bringing his creation back to the place it was when it was good because now you are also a creator. This is really, really, really going to mess with people. Right? If the same spirit that raised, if the spirit that brooded over the water and prepared for let there be light is in me and you, then there's some stuff we need to be speaking light into. You have the ability to go to one of your friends that are lost Tell them your story, then feel conviction from God and get saved. Hopefully you've done that. If not, like try it. It's amazing. Okay? But but you have that ability. You have the ability to create a new identity within someone because of God who is in you, leveraging your new identity into bringing others into a new identity. We don't see we don't think about this stuff. People don't feel like they need to reach their friends today because they can bring them to a cool rock show and the church will get them saved. No. I don't want to say, I want I mean, I want your friends to be saved, but I don't want them to be because of my good message. I want it to be because you led them to Christ. We'll lead people to Jesus. Absolutely. I would much rather you lead them to Jesus and me lead my people to Jesus, and then we'll all come together and have a big party together as we equip the saints for more work of the ministry. I know it's Resurrection Day. I know that. This is why I'm saying all this. So, how do I want to end this? Matt, where's Matt? Can you come up here? <clears throat> Let me make sure I didn't skip anything that I need to hit today. Y'all good? We're way earlier than normal, so y'all should be good. In resurrection, in resurrection, Jesus permanently destroyed any distance between God and us. Even look at the cross. This is going to be dad cheesy, but that's okay. Look at the cross. In between one side and another side is Jesus Christ as the gap between the two. I mean, there's so much symbolic stuff when it comes to everything in Scripture, but particularly the cross. Jesus permanently destroys, or I would even say maybe becomes, the filling of the gap of any distance that ever existed between us and God. There is no distance between you and God anymore. Why? Because of Jesus. The veil was torn. He got out of a tomb and now death itself has been stripped of any power. The only thing, that's why that's what I, I say all the time that the enemy is, is such a pipsqueak and I hate him. I hate the enemy. I hate the devil. We sang that third verse twice this morning just for the fun of it so I could sing it to the devil. That's, that's the only reason. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some days I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to get about three people saved today just for the fun of it. Sorry, devil. You, you know? 
I just hate him. I hate him. But we, we, the reason I'm always talking about us just making him seem so insignificant is because Jesus stripped him of all his power. If he has no power, then what is he? Insignificant. And if he has any significance anymore in our world, you know why? It's because we give it to him. I'm telling you, this, is, I'm, this, this messes with people. This mess because because at some point at some point we've got to make the transition from the devil's really beating me up to I'm really beating me up. At some point we've got to stop saying the devil's really kicking me in the teeth, and we've got to ask ourselves why aren't we kicking him in the teeth? Bro, I'm I'm just really going through it. Why? What do you mean? Well, you don't understand my story. No, I don't. But I understand his story. And because of his story, that means we don't have to walk through the junk that a lot of people force themselves to walk through today. Man, I, I, brother, I, I just hate my job. Well, maybe the Lord didn't give you that job, but it might not be the devil. It might not be, man, okay. It might be the fact that you're walking down a path you were never designed to walk down. We, we are the authority in creation, not the devil. The devil never was the authority. I mean, let me just help you. The devil at no point in history had authority over creation, ever. Even when we fail, the Lord didn't say, all right, devil, here's your authority. No, the Lord said, all right, they fail, I'm going to take authority. He, the devil's never had authority, ever. What Jesus stripped him of of the cross was authority that man gave him by falling into line with whatever he wanted to deceive them with. Hey, man, that, that golden calf over there looks real cool to worship. Sure, let's worship it. Let me, all right, let me say it like this. Let me say it like this, because that's not relatable. Let me say it like this. Man, that, that person over there matches everything that you want. Maybe you should date them. Okay, sure. That job looks like everything you've ever wanted, but it's going to rip you from your community but at least it's your good job just take it sure don't we do that I mean am I making stuff up we do that because this has been stripped of all its meaning and we took all the meaning that this had and gave it to a stinking devil. That's what we did. We did that. But here's the good news. If we did that, then guess what we can also do? Take it back. We used to sing a song growing up. I went to the enemy's camp and took back what he stole from me. I would like to edit those lyrics and say I went into the enemy's camp and took back what I gave him. didn't steal anything from if he stole anything from you you gave it to him he can't steal anything from me he has no authority to steal anything from me he can't take one second of my life but i can give it to him because i'm a creator in the image of the creator that's what free free will is an amazing thing until we have to bear the weight of doing wrong with free will and then we try to explain free will away 
free will is an amazing thing as long as we're doing good. But the minute we make a wrong decision, it's like, well, maybe free will doesn't exist. Maybe it's just God's robotic sovereignty. Just, you know what I mean? Like, nope, we made bad decisions. Free will. It's an amazing thing. But it can be destructive because you are in the image of the creator. He trusted us with an immense amount of authority, which means every second of your life matters. Every decision you make matters because every decision you make is not just a flippant, passive decision. Every decision you make is one who has been brought into the image of the creator and you're creating something with your decisions. So so you're not just making random decisions, you're making a creation. And what we're doing is we're bringing creation into bondage every time, as Paul says, we, we decide to live according to the flesh, according to what everything around us says we should live for, we're bringing creation right back into its bondage. And it is standing on tiptoe, waiting for a generation who will say, I will be a son and daughter of God, not just by a prayer I prayed, but by the fruit from my tree. I'm not going to live depressed. I'm not going to live worried. I'm saying this about me because this is stuff I've struggled with. I'm not going to live worried. I'm not going to live unhealthy. Fill in the blank, right? I'm not going to live getting my teeth kicked in. I'm not going to live letting a career dictate my life. I'm not going to live letting anything dictate my life unless his name is Yeshua. That's us. You got 24 hours every day. And guess who is in complete control of those 24 hours? You. You you have a life. And guess who is in complete control of that life? Hopefully with the Lord, you. Are y'all with me? If if God's space, I'm going to end with this, and our space is differentiated solely on a materialistic basis then you have to die and leave this world before encountering that world. Think, think of this for a minute. Think just last thing. If God's space and our space is differentiated by material, in other words, this is made up of one thing, flesh, natural, whatever, and God's space is made up of ghost and you know, floaty and all that stuff, if, if that's the case, the only way you can encounter that world is to die and float to that world, which is why most people want to die and float to that world, right? But if God's space and our space is differentiated by purpose and function, then we can access it now and allow it to flood creation as God's space and our space collide. Do you hear this? If the difference between God's world and our world is simply function and purpose, then all we've got to do is be brought back into alignment with God's function and purpose for it to start to flood into our function and purpose around us. All we've got to do is get this creation to shift into functioning like new creation for new creation to exist. That's it. If everybody, on, let me, if everybody on planet Earth got born again, truly born again tomorrow, guess what would happen? Uh, huge dump. Jesus would come back. 
Well, how do you know that? Because he said he's coming back for a pure and spotless bride. Not a tainted bride. Not a broken bride. He's coming back. No, that, that, he took the broken bride here. This is the broken bride. No, he's coming back for the resurrected, pure and spotless bride. He's coming back for the bride that says yes at the end of Revelation. Y'all go ahead and bow your heads. Let me just read this over you. Revelation 22. John just gets a vision of new creation. He gets a vision of Eden restored. And then he ends his book with this. I, I just I want to read this. Verse 12, Revelation 22, eyes closed. Look, I am coming soon. And my reward, think of it like everything we just talked about. My reward with me, I will give to each person according to what they have done. Done, what do you mean? Done with the groom. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Listen, blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have, Lord, help me, that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Uh-oh. But I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now listen to this right here. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. The spirit and the bride together in unison say, come. This is how I want to end this today. I just spent a lot of time talking about resurrection and talking about a bunch of other deep stuff. And here's the reason why is because what we have to do as a believing body of Christ is we have to get to the place where the spirit in us and the body of Christ that we are a part of starts to in unison cry out, come, come. Not, not to get us away, but come to bring the victory and fullness of what we are starting Another way you could, you could look at that is, come be with me. The spirit and the bride say, come meet us. If you, and I said this Tuesday night, but if you um, in this room 
haven't been born again. And, and let, me, uh, let me just clarify. I was saved. I repeated a prayer when I was about eight, maybe. But I was, quote, unquote, born again about six years ago. That was when my life changed. So that, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talk, what, what was the moment that you went from the old you to the new you? Do you govern by the Spirit of God? If there has never been that moment, that moment, then I would love to lead you in that moment right now. So if you've never done that, could you just raise your hand? Everybody's like, got their eyes closed. Anybody in this room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Anybody else? Okay, you guys can put your hands down. I, I'm going to pray, and, uh, and here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I'm not going to ask you to repeat a prayer after me, but what I am going to do is I'm going to ask you to invite the presence of Jesus to govern your life. Invite yourself into that covenant that he made with Abram. Say yes to being the bride of the bridegroom, Jesus. Give him your life. Allow him to, to, to birth you again. That, that your life looks so different after this moment that people are gonna look at you and say, are you even the same person anymore? That's what we're talking about. And so Lord, I pray over every person that just raised their hand. Yahweh, I pray that you would rebirth, rebirth them and even others maybe watching this that have never gone through that. Would you bring them into new life? Bring them into this covenant that we get to enjoy, enjoying life to the full and joy unspeakable, full of glory. We thank you for those who have come home. In your name, amen. Y'all just give the Lord a hand, come on.